God, I, I do want to just thank you that we get to do this. And I use the word get to intentionally. This isn't a chore. This isn't a, a box uh, on a checklist, a checklist that we have to cross off to say that we did it. We get to be here. Every week we get to celebrate who you are and what you've done. And I pray that we would have joy as we're singing. Uh, Lord, that looks differently. Some people raise their hands. Some people clap. Some people do all kinds of different things. But I just pray at the heart of it would be joy in response to what you've done and who you are. God, I pray now as we open up your word that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying through what you have said and eyes to see. God, I pray that you would just show us where in our lives are, are we out of step with your word. But God, I pray that would not drive us to simply trying harder, to trying to do better, but it would ultimately drive us, Jesus, to you so that we can receive grace for where we have fallen short, but also grace and empowerment to walk with you and by your grace do what you've called us to do. We love you. Speak to us now. Is your name we pray. Amen. When I was in middle school or high school, I was playing football, and we had what was back then called two-a-days. So you would go in the morning and practice for a little bit, take a break, come back in the afternoon, and, and wrap up. Uh, this is not the point of the story, but the worst mistake I ever made in that whole thing, because I was new to two-a-days, is I went home and for lunch had milk and waffles. Um, did not go well. A few of the football players in the room, you're like, oh, dude, that's just got to be awful. It was. We won't go into details. We're going to now go right past that story. It just randomly came into my head. Moving on. So at the end of one of the two days, right as practices were about to end, season was about to begin, the coach, and he was a pretty intense, like, gruff guy, got the whole team together and said, all right, guys, I need to talk to you about something important for a few minutes. Just like, kind of imagine, he had like a party cup, but it was also a mullet at the same time, which I don't know how it's possible, but he pulled it off somehow. Uh, he was like, guys, just listen to me for a few minutes. We're like, oh, what do we do wrong? We're at the run laps. He said, listen, if we're going to have a successful season, we got to get our priorities straight. Here's what all of your lists need to be if we're going to do this. The first priority in your life has always got to be God. He was a believer, which was cool. And it's cool that he was saying this to a group of guys, but it's like, it's got to be God. Number two, it's your family. Number three is school. And number four is football. You know, friends, you can see them in December, you know, kind of a thing. And so he lays out this priority list, which was a cool thing, but it was the first time I was ever exposed to this idea of having like a priority list like that and God being at the top. And then throughout the rest of my life, I've been exposed to this idea at different times of having your priorities in order. And there's part of that, just for the record, I think is awesome. God should be number one. I mean, we see even in the Bible, right, that seek first, number one, his kingdom and his righteousness and the rest will be added to you. But what I've seen as I've grown older is a little bit of a danger sometimes in how we talk about it, in that it can feel like we're almost separating God over here from then like all the other stuff that's a part of your life over here. It's like we put number, God number one apart from then your job, your family, your finances, your leisure life, all that stuff. And if we're not careful, God being number one means that we begin to separate it. Uh, a second thing I just realized a few years ago is I don't even know how practically this works out in life. Um, like, you know, if I had told my coach, well, I feel like God needs to be number one, so I need to go on a quiet time and not practice today. I would tell you right now, I know how that would have gone. Okay, well, you can pray to God while you're running laps, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. But then the final thing is I just realized, you know, let's just talk about time and how we spend our time and even how a lot of us think of putting God first, right? Um, a lot of us think putting God first really equates to things like reading your Bible, 
prayer, going to church, like serving in the church or in the community, um, you know, things like that. Being in a GC or a DG, being in some kind of community, all those are great things, and we should do them. But I did some math, and what I wrote down, I just did some basic math. Okay, how many hours are you awake in a given year? It's 5,840. If you're sleeping eight hours a night, basically that's the amount of waking hours you have in a year. 5,840. And then I calculated, okay, like what if you had the most amazing put God first every year ever? And every day, 30 minutes a day, you were in the Bible and in prayer. Every day, didn't miss one. You didn't miss a single service of church. Like you were there, even this year when like Christmas is on a Sunday, you're like I'm there kind of a thing. PJs and all, you came. Like don't miss a Sunday. Um, you were in community every single week for at least two hours. You served for an hour every week. And then you know what, just to top it off for fun, you went on a mission trip for five days, right? Like serving 16 hours a day. And by the way, if you did all that, fantastic, all great things. We would encourage you to do all those things. But the math I did basically after I added all that up, it added up to 470 and a half hours, which if you then say, okay, over the course of a year, how much is that percentage-wise? This is what your life with God would look like that year. All those things combined only add up to 8% of your entire waking hours for the whole year, which means in that there's 92% of your life that's not related to directly reading the Bible, prayer, serving in the church, being in community, going on a mission trip. And again, hear me right now. I'm not saying those things are bad. And actually, the, the analogy I would use is, you know, if I work out two to three hours a week and I'm eating meals, which only about 30 minutes, you know, for maybe for each meal max, that's not a lot of the portion of the week, but it fuels the rest of it. And I would say the same thing, that your direct time with God fuels the rest of it. But here's, I think, where I'm getting this and to kind of bring us all together this is that as we talk about having a relationship with Jesus and an ongoing relationship with God, I want us to think not so much about, hey, how can I give God a slice of the pie of my life? And even like a big slice of putting God first. I would actually say, God doesn't want to be a slice of the pie of your life. He wants to be the pie. God doesn't even want to be first on a long list of things. He wants to be the list. So it's not, if we can maybe make this practical, of how do I put God first above my career and above my marriage and above my kids? I would actually say the way you make God first is say, how do I put God first in my marriage, in my career, in my kids, in my hobbies? And I think as you do that, you begin to truly make God first in your life. And so what we're going to see today in our text, Psalm 127, we've been walking through what's called the Psalms of Ascent. It is what Jewish pilgrims would sing as they're making their way up to Jerusalem, into the temple. In Psalm 127, we're actually going to see God is intimately involved already in every aspect of your life, in every little thing. And so then it's going to kind of give us an approach then of how do you approach God as if he truly is, which he already is, involved in every aspect of your life. So flip with me to Psalm 127. We're going to be there for a few minutes today. As you're going there, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the pews in front of you, those little black books there, if you want to grab one of those. Um, as you're flipping there, a few notes about Psalm 127. It's what, was, what we commonly refer to as a wisdom psalm, so there's different like, genres of psalms. Some psalms are songs of praise that people sing to God for who he is or what he's done. Some psalms are songs of lament. We covered that a few weeks ago, where it's people crying out their hearts to God because they see who God is, but they also see the situation of the world and like, oh, God, do something about this. But there's other psalms that are known as wisdom psalms. They're almost like the book of Proverbs where they're short, pithy sayings about life and how God has designed life 
to be lived and about truths about the world. And this is a wisdom psalm, which is interesting because when you get to Psalm 127, you'll probably see it says, of Solomon. Now, Solomon in the Bible was known as the wisest man who ever lived. Some people believe Solomon wrote Psalm 127, and this is actually one of his, one of his psalms. Others believe he didn't write it, but that this was kind of written in honor of him because it's reflecting a lot of the wisdom he shared. doesn't make a difference either way, but it's just something I wanted to note. One other thing uh, I want to note as we begin to read here, some people think that like verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 through 5 are actually different poems that people added together. Because as you'll see, they kind of takes a pretty right, hard right turn as a read in terms of the language used. What I actually want to show you in a little bit is it's really, it has the same common core truth that holds them together. And we're going to see that together. Let's actually all stand together and read Psalm 127 just in honor of the reading of God's word. Again, just as a reminder, we are now listening and hearing the God who has spoken when this was written so long ago, but is still right now in this moment speaking to us and to you. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build its labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You may be seated so we see here this idea of building, watching, parenting, of people creating and then uh, protecting and preserving. We see uh, a home being built, work. We see a city being watched over. We see then just raising kids. Basically, it gives us different scenarios of everyday normal life that we all live where we have responsibilities um, in our job that we go to, our nine-to-five. We have our families that we have to take care of, and then we're part of a society. It's basically saying God is involved in all of them and is the, actually the decisive factor in all of them. And as I was reading this text, actually one of the things that came to mind is oftentimes, especially when I was a student pastor, I'd get asked this question, well, how is God relevant to my life? Um, and, and really what that question assumes is two things. Number one, it assumes that actually like I'm the center of existence instead of God. That it's like, oh, well, how is he relevant to me since it's all about me? But the second thing that assumes is that God really isn't related to my day-to-day life. It's like I have that stuff over here. I have like if I was a student, I have my school, I have my sports and stuff like that. God's over here. But it, here's the reality is if God, as we just saw, is intimately already involved in every little detail of your life, the question is not how is God relevant to me and to my life. The question is, is, is how I'm living relevant to what God is doing already in my life? It's, it's how do I live a life that is actually relevant to God and what he is doing, not is he relevant to me and what I want to do. And so again, this psalm just shows us God is a part of everyday life. In fact, I thought it would maybe be helpful for us if we maybe modernize the language a little bit, just to kind of give you an idea of really what the psalm is saying. So actually, we'll have these up on the screen. If we were to modernize this a little bit, I think here's some examples of things that this would say. Unless the Lord closes the sale, you pitch your product in vain. Unless the Lord parents your kids... You raise them in vain. Unless the Lord gives you the job, you submit your resume in vain. 
Unless the Lord saves your marriage, you fight for it in vain. Unless the Lord adds to the church, you, we, we share our faith in vain. Unless the Lord expands your business, you market in vain. I'll just add right now, unless the Lord preaches this message, I preach in vain, so Jesus help. But like seriously, that's, that gives you an idea of God, God is just saying he is a part of all the little aspects of your life, and he is the decisive factor in them. And so we need to know then how do we approach all these different aspects of our life. Now, here's what I want to do for the rest of our time, how I kind of want to really approach the rest of, of the psalm and actually walking through it. I, I love uh, the book of Proverbs, and I love wisdom psalms, but here is what I have experienced over time. Is they can be a little dangerous because sometimes people take these great little expressions and sayings and they misapply them or they misrepresent really what they're saying. And that can do a little bit of harm. Actually, can do a lot of harm. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about here, what this, here's what this psalm doesn't mean and what it's not saying. Maybe just clear up a little bit of confusion that could happen in some of these verses. I then want to spend a chunk of time talking about, okay, if that's true, what is the main thing that Psalm 127 is saying to us today? And then just a couple ways that we can respond to it. So here, here's three things that I actually wrote down of things that Psalm 127 is not saying. As we're walking through this, that we have to be a little bit careful of. Psalm 127 is not saying that you don't need to work or that your work doesn't matter. Now, some of you, that's a bummer. Some of you, like I was reading this, and it says, unless the Lord builds it, you labor in vain. Woo-hoo, not doing anything anymore. Like, I'm done. That's it. Take a siesta. Go grab some tacos from Black Sheep. Go to the hot tub. Actually, that sounds awful on a day like today. Don't do that. Wait for October, November to do that. But seriously, so we're like, all right, not going to work. Like, but here's what I want you to This text is not saying don't work. Well, how, how do we know that? Number one, we, we know it because we have the rest of the Bible. Just as a little tip is you're reading scripture, especially on your own. Um, individual verses can speak to us, but also remember God speaks to us not just in individual verses, but in chapters. And not just in chapters, but whole books of the Bible. And not just the whole books of the Bible, but the whole Bible. So when we read stuff like this, we got to make sure that our interpretation of it lines up with the rest of the Bible. Now, here's some different places in the Bible and what it has to say about work. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Now, so ought to imitate, meaning he expects the people he's writing to to do what he's about to say. We were not idle or lazy when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. So, so even you kind of even heard some similar words and phrases that you actually just heard in Psalm 127. So when we read these, like, okay, this is not saying, Psalm 127 is not saying we shouldn't be willing to work hard or even work long hours. It's not what it's saying. Um, even like Colossians 3.23, I love this verse. Whatever you do, work heartily, or the idea with all of your might, with all of your energy, as for the Lord and not for men. I love that, whatever you do. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, you're an accountant, you're a teacher, you're a student, you're an athlete, whatever you do, I love that word whatever. So it's not just, hey, you have to be a pastor or a missionary. And listen, we just honored missionaries. We hold them in high esteem. I'm a pastor, so I love them. Um, kind of a thing. Like, we love that. It's great. But I just love this. Whatever you do can be done for the Lord. To me, that's so freeing. It's so amazing that you every day can be used by God in an incredible way. Everything you do matters. Everything. So partly we know it's not saying this just from the whole Bible as a whole, but partly is actually just looking at Psalm 127. Look at the phrasing with me in verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, 
Those who build it labor in vain. So it's not saying that they're not building. They are building. In fact, when you see in Scripture, often when God does things, he does them through other people. So God actually had the people build a temple. And you know how it was built? With people, <laughs> with their hands, those who labored actually building the temple. In fact, some commentators think that this is not referring so much to like an individual home, but to the temple itself. So God built the temple through people. But look at what it says, unless the Lord does it, they labor in vain. Same thing, and then in verse, uh, the next part of the verse, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So the expectation is that the watchman gets to take a nap, or that he gets to sleep for the night. Now, the expectation is the idea of, hey, you have work to do, but it's not the decisive factor in the work itself. Uh, I think an illustration would help right here. I was uh, a few years ago watching uh, Olympic sailing. I've always loved the idea of sailing. Um, I, I still want to learn. In fact, at one point, would love to over the next couple years as we moved here, especially like days like today, you see the water and like, oh, it would just be so incredible. Well, my picture of sailing is this. Um, I've always thought of like people wearing, you know, like knit sweaters with board shorts or something like that, or maybe like tropical clothing and you're out there and you've got like fish you just caught out of the ocean and cut and you're eating it. Like you've just made your own personal sushi on the boat. Some of you are like, that's disgusting. So we'll say there's a charcuterie board there. Okay, you got charcuterie on there, and you're just hanging out. You're sipping lemonade, Arnold Palmer's. If you don't know what that is, we don't have time. It's half tea, half lemonade. We did have time. Um, Wonderful if you've never tried it. So yeah, you're just kind of just leisurely. It's like leisure. You're just sitting there, taking in life, maybe occasionally moving the wheel of the boat so you don't like, you know, sail into a barge or anything, you know, stuff like that. But overall, just really leisure. And then I saw Olympic sailors, like actually sailing, like the best of the best professional sailors in the world sailing. And it dawned on me like, whoa, this is actually a lot of work and a lot of hard work. In fact, we've got a clip up here that we're going to show you of what it looks like to be an Olympic sailor. Oh, watch these people and what they're doing. So side note, if you want to make your sermon better, get an Australian accent up there. That's fantastic. But no, like, I didn't see a charcuterie board anywhere. I don't know about you. <laughs> I like, didn't see it happen. Like, these people were like, you're working. Oh, that just hurt when I did that. <laughs> they were working, and they were like moving stuff around. I mean, that's incredible. They were working hard in order to be able to sell the boat. But when you're watching that, um, I don't know if this hit you, but when I watched that again this previously this week, I thought, that, I thought about this question. What was the most decisive factor in that video clip in terms of that race? The wind. Because think about it. Like, if it was zero mile an hour wind, that would have been so boring. Like, and it would have been really comical, too, if, like, they were all in their boat, like, doing this and, like, doing different things, and they're all just kind of sitting there like, well, this kind of stinks. They're not going anywhere. Or if you remember Tommy Boy, if you've ever seen that movie where Chris Farley is out in the middle of the lake, one person laughed because you thought that was funny, and you've seen it. The rest of you, just don't worry about it. Anyways, yeah, you just be sitting there. So the idea is, man, their work mattered. Because they weren't all in like, the same place. Like, their work mattered. But the decisive factor in the work was not them but the wind. This invisible force that they couldn't see, you can't see, but whose presence or absence makes all the difference. I think you're beginning to know where I'm about to go here. Your work matters. But there's not an invisible force, but there is this invisible personal God 
whose presence or absence in your activity is the decisive factor in you raising your kids, in your work, in your finances, in everything. So this text is not saying that you shouldn't work, your work doesn't matter. Your work matters so much. God wants to use you for his purposes in this world. It matters. It's just not the decisive factor as you go along and everything. Okay? Number two, and we'll, keep, uh, we'll make the next couple pretty short. Second thing this text is not saying is that if you don't believe in God, it's not saying this, it's not saying that if you don't believe in God, then you're going to fail. It's not saying if you don't believe in God, then you won't be successful in life. Uh, There's people in scripture who didn't believe in God, or even if they did, did not really press into God, did not have an active relationship with God, that succeeded. Um, In fact, Solomon, who this was attributed to at least in the vein of, he was a wise man, but he did not really apply that wisdom well, especially in the latter years of his life. And from worldly standards, he was the wealthiest man in the world. Like He had it going on, but at the same time, he failed at what matters most. Um, you have other people throughout the history. You have people who are atheists, who don't even believe in God whatsoever, who, guess what? They build houses, and the houses have stood. Um, they had good marriages and good families. Um, they've protected cities, and they've stood. So there sometimes, I think, can be this thing of like, oh, in order to be, have a successful life, you have to be a believer in God. Now, I do believe doing life God's way, there's generally blessings, rewards that come with that, but it's not guaranteed, and you can live a life that doesn't honor God, but it still be successful in the eyes of the world. Now, here's what I'll go ahead and say. We'll get back to this more in a bit, but here's what I'd say is, and for what? And for what? 70 years of being successful apart from an active relationship with God, and then it's over. And it was in vain, hence the words in this text. I think of even the idea of that vain and all that work for nothing of like, I don't know if you've been to the beach um, recently, but I've got kids, and so we go, we often want to make sand castles, and so I've spent hours just, you know, crafting these incredible castles, but guess what always happens? Water comes in, and you never would have even known there was a beautiful castle there before. You can live your life apart from God, creating this incredible monument to yourself that'll be gone in an instant. And so it will be in vain. So I just so on the one hand, hey, this text is not saying that in order to be successful in life, you have to have a relationship with God. On the other hand, I would say it, doesn't mean, it does mean you're going to have a vain life apart from that. We'll come back to that in a minute, though. All right, last thing, and then I want to get to really the core of what this text means. The final thing, and I, I want to actually just hit this. I, I've, I've tossed around the idea of doing this or not, but after praying about thinking about it and talking to my wife, I think I, I need to say it. What this text does not mean, especially verses 3 through 5, what this text does not mean is that if you don't have children, then you're not blessed. As I was reading this, my fear when we got to these verses is that there would be people here, people listening or watching the video who would think, well, I don't have kids. Maybe because of just choices, maybe because you married late in life, or maybe, God forbid, that you struggle with infertility. And I didn't want you to read this and think, am I cursed then? Is God against me? He's not. In fact, I'll just be bold for a minute, because I've heard this sometimes in life, usually from prosperity gospel preachers. If you've ever heard or been told that you don't have kids because you've sinned or you don't have enough faith or you're cursed by God, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not true. I don't know why you don't have kids, especially if you're struggling with infertility. I don't know why. Um, 
But what I do know is that Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest man who ever lived, didn't have kids. And I would not say that we consider him to have lived a cursed life because of that. And so I just want to say, if you're in here struggling with that, that's not what this text means. And I hope you don't carry any more weight now after we have covered that. If you are in Jesus, you are blessed and favored by God, whether you have kids or not. In fact, here's what I would just say, even just to kind of put you a little bit at ease. What these verses are hitting on is the idea of there's this incredible thing that children do give. I will say this text is saying children are a blessing, not a burden, which I think our culture needs to hear. Children are a blessing, not a burden. But did you catch of how it said that they're arrows like in the quiver of a warrior? Uh, my wife recently got a tattoo actually of three arrows on her wrist that represents our three children. And the idea of an arrow is it's used for defense, right? It's used as a weapon potentially for defense. And then later in, a few ver- in uh, verse 5, it talks about how the person who has a lot of kids will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And a few verses earlier, it talks about how it's great if you have a lot of kids when you're younger. Here's why it would have been in this culture, is that kids were really in this culture your elder health care. <laughs> that if you got older and you didn't have kids, you were extremely vulnerable in this society. And often where there'd be confrontations is at the gate, which it mentions here. So really it's just saying, listen, children are a blessing because as you get older in this culture, they will be there to protect you and defend you if need be. So this text is saying that children are a blessing. It just is not saying that you're not blessed if you don't have them, okay? All right, I think we've done some work and kind of avoided some landmines. Now let's get back to, okay, so what's the main thing this text says? We've already covered in a sense part of it. We've, we've, saw, we've seen how... It's saying that Jesus, that God is a part of every little aspect of your life. But here, if I could sum sum it up in a sentence, it would be this. You and I are utterly dependent on God in every aspect of life. You are utterly dependent upon God in every aspect of your life. Because look at this. Unless the Lord builds a house, common everyday thing, unless he builds it, you're laboring in vain. So you could be building a house and you have your plans and you have your designs. I was just at a friend's house the other day and they're building a house right now. Beautiful. In the mountains, you can see mountains and berry fields. This person likes to hunt, so they might get spoiled because I think they could like shoot the deer from their hot tub kind of a thing. you know. Like, uh, but here's, here's the reality and I hope it succeeds. But at the end of the day, if a forest fire came in that was out of their control or if a recession comes or anything, God forbid, but if that were to happen, Despite their best plans, strategies, raising money, everything, it will not succeed if God doesn't want it to. Unless the watchman, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Man, you can have all the defenses to guard a city and a nation. If God wants it to fall, it's not going to stand. No matter what. God is the decisive factor in every part of life, and that means that we are utterly dependent upon him in every aspect of our lives. Now, let's just be honest for a second. We, as Americans, don't necessarily like this idea. Because especially like the idea of American dream, we like to be self-made, independent, I don't need no one type of people, right? Like that's the whole point of even like getting a car and getting out to college is getting away from your parents so you can be your own person and I can be out on my own and have my own life and build my own thing. And we love this idea of the self-made person, except that it's just not true at all. Like you are utterly dependent. Forget even, let's take God out of the equation for a second. Do we even realize how utterly dependent we are on other people? And like on our society? Let's walk through our day so far, okay? Um, I had eggs. Don't know what you had. I had eggs. I didn't go get those from the chicken. 
I didn't then go load them onto the truck that was, it was used to then ship them here. For the truck, I didn't put the truck together. I didn't go personally get all the raw material of steel and iron or whatever it's made out of and then personally put the truck together. If it broke apart, I don't have the resources to fix it. I would go to Lowe's, which is a home repair place. So you already know I'm not going to do that good of a job of fixing that truck. Um, I didn't put the gasoline in the truck. I didn't get the gasoline out of the earth and mine it out of the earth. I didn't refine the gasoline then to put in. I didn't put it in the truck that then shipped it to the place where I got. You can see where I'm going with all this. Okay, so that's just my eggs. It's just my eggs. Oh, I didn't put it at the grocery store. I wasn't the person who put it out. That's just my eggs. Okay. Um, I got out of bed. Hurting, but I got out of bed. <laughs> um, I didn't cut the wood down from the tree. I didn't cut the tree down. I didn't process that tree. I didn't load it up on a thing that was then again got fuel from somewhere that I didn't personally process. I didn't put the mattress together. You kind of get where I'm going with this. Like everything in our life, every little second, we are utterly dependent upon other people for making it happen. Now, here's my question. Who or what is the ultimate source of all those people and all those things and the sustainer of all those people and all those things? God. So as much as we like to think we are self-made, independent, we don't need anyone type of people, we are all utterly dependent upon others and utterly dependent upon God. Now, if this is true, For everything. Again, we don't have to put it up there, but if you look back to think about that graph put up earlier, the 92% of your life where you're at your work and you're with your family and you're at sports activities and other stuff like that, how should we approach those areas knowing that in all those areas, God is the decisive factor and we're dependent upon him in all of them? In all of them. And again, even like with your kids, I forgot to say this in the text, but like the verse three says, children are a heritage where from the Lord. So even like us wanting to have kids, ultimately it's up to him to give us kids. So if that's the truth, every part of our life we're dependent upon God, how then should we approach God? I've identified three approaches. I'm actually gonna put some pictures up here on the screen of how we can approach then life, if this is true. Um, one, One approach that some people do is we have my part and God's part. And you're going to see that's a common thing throughout the next three pictures. So like, there's my part and there's God's part. And this is, to me, a good picture representing people who do decide to live life apart from God. Whether they don't believe in God or maybe they do, but they're like, you know what? I'm fine on my own. They say, you know what? I've got my part. God's got his part. I'm going to do life apart from him. I would say to this, number one, actually, this is not an accurate picture because the very breath you just took was actually given by that God. So you're still utterly dependent upon him, even if you don't want to acknowledge it. The second thing I'd say is, man, at the end of the day, if you're living life apart from God, one day your life is going to end. And everything you just did was in vain, and it was random. You didn't plug it into the story that God was writing in the world and with your life. And I like that idea of a story. Like, imagine for a second if you were reading this amazing novel. Like, I love Lord of the Rings. Maybe you're reading Lord of the Rings. You're watching a great movie, whatever you love. And just imagine this random character comes out of nowhere. Like, imagine if I'm reading, you know, like, Lord of the Rings, and then all of a sudden Neo from The Matrix or, like, Maverick from Top Gun appears. You're laughing because you're like, that would be really weird. Why? Because it doesn't fit with the story that's being written. Because like Maverick would have his own goals and his own things that he's doing. He's not trying to figure out what's happening in Lord of the Rings and fit his life into that. It would be weird and random. And here's what I'd say is if you're trying to live your life apart from God, your life is kind of weird and random in the story he's writing in this world. But the beautiful news this morning is if that's you, God actually has the story he wants to write in your life and he wants you to be a part of his story. 
And as we'll talk about here in a bit, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you and for all the times where you try to live life on your own so that he could actually have you be a part of his story. It's an awesome thing. So this is one approach. A second approach that we can do is really what I hit when I talked about having that list of like, all right, like, you know, kind of that trying to dedicate 8% of your life to God. My part with God where it overlaps a little bit is when I'm in prayer with him, when I'm in the Bible with him. But then when I go to work, I'm really not thinking actively about God. I'm just going to work. Or when I'm with my kids, I'm really not thinking about, well, how would God like have me interact with my kids? Or when I'm handling my finances, I'm not stopping and thinking about like, how would God have me handle my finances? It's like, no, no, no. For that little part of the day, it's me and God. Or that little part of the week on Sundays, it's me and God. But then the rest of the time, I'm on my own, he's on my own. And, and we've already talked about why this doesn't work. We don't have to get into it much. There's a third picture I want to give that I want to focus on for the rest of our time that is going to give us some responses we can have to how God's at work. And it's this one. In this picture, you have the idea of, I have my part. My part is my life. But you realize if everything is dependent on God, and God is the decisive factor in every part of my life, then I want my whole life to be God's. I want every aspect of my life to be a part of God and what he is doing. And I want to actively rely on him. See, there's a difference between being passively dependent on God, which is everyone, by the way. Again, you, can, you don't even have to believe in God, but you're dependent on him. You're breathing. You're dependent on God for that breath. But there's a difference between being passively dependent upon God and saying, no, 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 if God is the decisive factor of everything, then in everything, I want to actively rely on him for everything and in everything. Making sense so far? So let's just talk about, okay, what does this actually look like? I'm gonna give you two words in terms of then how you can use this to approach life in every aspect. Rely and relax. You rely on God in everything, and in everything you also can relax. Let's hit rely. So again, there's this idea between passively depending on God, but actively saying, I wanna rely on God in my marriage, in my friendships, in my finances, all those things. I actually found this, I'm gonna, I won't say cheat because I'm gonna attribute it to him, but a guy named Alan Ross, a professor of mine when I was in seminary, when his, he was commenting on the psalm, he gave five things that he said, if you can say these five things, you could look at the different parts of your life and saying you are relying on God and you can say the Lord built what he would call the house. Whether the house means your marriage or your job or whatever it is. He gave five things that if you can say, it means that the Lord built that. Let's put those five up on the screen for us. I'm gonna, you can write these down, although we can send them out in the loop um, and you can get them tomorrow. But let me just briefly hit these and maybe just make a few comments on them. Here's the five things that Alan Ross said that I thought were great. That I think like, if you want to put some practical teeth on this idea of what does it mean to rely on God, I'd say these things. Number one, you could say it, whether again this is about your marriage, job, anything. It's built by faith in the Lord's provisions for it. So, for example, I'm a parent. I need a lot of wisdom. <laughs> a lot. Because you, you get these situations that you just don't know how to deal with. I mean, like the other day, for example, like my, my, my middle child, Kylie, is uh, doing horseback riding. And she's got the Linden Fair this week. And she's got all these competitions. And she has grown to be in love with this horse. And, and uh, the horse's name is Ivy. And she loves, loves, loves this horse, has this connection. But we found out a few days ago that Ivy might be hurt. 
They don't know yet, but they think it might be hurt. And so then there's a decision that has to be made. Of like, okay, they can give Ivy this medicine, um, but if she's hurt, it may actually hurt her worse if she rides. So we could have just spent the last month and a lot of money investing in getting ready for this and just let it go up and send some flames. Or we could ride the horse, which my girl loves, and we could ride it, it, but it could hurt the horse my girl loves. So what do you do? No, really, if you know, I need you to tell me right now. Like, what do we do about this situation? No, you know what you do? If I'm thinking about asking the Lord's provisions for it, my mind goes to James where it says, let anyone who lacks wisdom ask for it, and God will give it. And so like with my kids, I need wisdom for that. So I'm like, God, help me. Because what I want to do is I want to be able to eventually look at this situation and say, whatever happens, the Lord built it. And if I want to be able to say that, and I want to be able to say what I did was not in vain, I want to ask, what do I need from him for it? Okay, number two. You just have to ask, is this thing in accordance with his will? Is this what God wants? Decisions you're making, things you're doing, is it in accordance with his will? When we were um, coming to Washington uh, a little over a year ago, um, you know, there were things that we just loved and appealed to us. You know, we came in April when it was 70s. I feel like you guys orchestrated that, by the way. <laughs> I was like, because this year it was not like that in, in April at all. Uh, yeah, I love that weather. I love the mountains. I love the ocean. There's things that appealed to us, but you know, at the end of the day, we were asking God, and I know the staff and the elders were, is this God what you want? Because if we came out of selfish motives or if they brought us out of selfish motives, I might be here, but we wouldn't necessarily be able to look at it and say, the Lord built that. The Lord has the Cunninghams here. And we want to be able to say that. Well, listen, all the different areas of your life, you want to be able to say, this is what God wants me to do. That's what we must be a part of. All right, moving on. Another thing you can ask as you're trying to rely on God it's done in a way that's pleasing to him. And that one is just simple as you just look through Scripture and say, what does the Bible have to say about these areas and these things? Am I doing these things in a way that's pleasing to him? So, for example, with work, we read one earlier, work heartily as unto the Lord. And so, like, in your work, you can say, all right, God wants me to work hard as unto him with good motives. If I'm doing that, it's pleasing to him. Number four, it's dedicated to his use and purposes. It's saying, God, at the end of the day, these things I'm doing, I, I, I want you to have them. I want you to use them. I love someone once said, worship is giving God his breath back. And where they got that from is that idea of if every breath is a gift, worship then is literally just saying, God, the breath doesn't belong to me. I'm going to give it back to you. Same thing with your finances. You realize everything is ultimately from God. So God, it's not that, hey, these are my finances. It's saying, God, they're yours here. I want you to use it as you please. So it's dedicating them to them. And then number five, and then we'll move on. We can say that the Lord built the house if it gives glory to him for the accomplishment. In other words, it's not just about doing these things. Ultimately, you want to be able to say, God gets the glory for it. You want to be able to look at the way you did all of your life and say, it's only because of God even if he used you for a ton of it. It was because of God, ultimately. So this is what it looks like to rely. I hope you wrote these things down. And what I would just encourage you to do over the next, maybe even week, is just break the different aspects of your life down and think through, okay, are these five things true? Am I actively, truly relying on God? Like, here's maybe a way to ask it. Like, with your work, am I consciously, actively depending upon God as I go to work? Or am I just going to work? Am I actively, consciously depending on God as I raise my kids? Or am I just raising my kids? So maybe take those five things and just think through those things. But here's what I will say. You do all that. So let's say you do all the five things. That's awesome. Here's the second thing I would tell you, though. You rely on God, and then you can relax. 
You can relax. You're like, okay, where do you get that? Here's where I get that. Going back to Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Literally, it just told you to take a nap. Like, seriously, just take a nap, go to sleep. Seriously, joking. It's like, what it just said was, listen, it's in vain because it is not all up to you. So going back to that diagram, if you would put Tyson, that third diagram back up there, you do have a part to play in these things. That's the five things we just went through, okay? But at the end of the day, there's going to be a part of your life where your part ends and God's part really is the whole thing, but truly it's only what God can do. And what I've experienced in my life is this, is the second I get past my part and I start trying to do God's part for him is right when anxiety and worry come. It's right when I start freaking out and I get stressed. And why? Because I start trying to hold the world up and have the whole world and my family and my job depend on me when it doesn't. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but doing two people's jobs is exhausting. You were never meant to do God's job for him. And so the great thing is, I think God has made it so that we rely on him, but then guess what? He wants us to relax. It says he gives his beloved sleep. And in other words, stop acting as if everything depends on you. Um, I, I love this um, thought that I had earlier this morning. I was remembering when Emma, my third child, was younger. And she still does it now some, but she definitely did when she was four or five. And if she saw me like lifting something heavy, like a table or something, she would often go over there and like grab part of it and, and walk it with me. Right? And she thought she was being so helpful and like, oh, daddy needs me now and kind of all this thing. And we would get there and I would even sometimes that like, oh, this is so hard. Thank you for helping me. And we would put it down. But here's, you know what the truth is? And I can say this and not feel bad because she's not in here and she wasn't the nine. I didn't even notice when she let go. Like whatsoever. I didn't even notice it because really like she was not there. Like I wasn't depending on her. She was depending on me. And here's what I say is like some of us, like that's how we treat God. It's like we're like, oh, I've got to hold all this. And God's like, I got it. Just let go. Just let go. So yes, do your part, but know ultimately God is awesome at being God. And he can handle all the things that you need to let go of and stop worrying about. So listen, in all the aspects of our life, if we're going to have a godly approach to all the 92% and the 8% and everything in between, we rely upon God, but then we relax because God's got it. And he's great at being God. Um, here's the reality, though, is like I thought about this last service, and I did this in communion, but the good thing is when you have a second service, you can do it better the second time, although I just advertised that I'm doing it, so it kind of missed the whole point. But anyways, at the end of the first service, I thought, Here, here's what I fear, though, is like we say that, and what I don't want it to become is, all right, now all of you, you need to, do, you need to, go, you need to try harder at relaxing. <laughs> like, this sounds weird. Like, you need to try harder at not trying harder. Um, and you need to try harder at trusting and, and relying on God. And listen, I think we do, in a sense. Like, every, every week, again, as I said earlier, we go to this book and we see how God would have us live. And we see the, the disconnect between what God wants for us and the way we're living. But here's what I want you to know. The answer as Christians is not now to go and try harder. That's not your first instinct. As Christians, you know what our first instinct needs to be? Is actually to go to the one who never failed in the ways that we failed. 
This past week, I did not rely on God in everything and in every way. There were days, I'm just being real with you, there were days where I was just busy and I slept in late and I didn't like spend as much time in the Word, I did fast, and I literally drove to work, got on the phone, started working, and never really prayed over my day. And I'm a pastor. <laughs> Hope you're not judging me too hard, I'm just saying, like, I'm a pastor. I have trouble this week relying on God. I had trouble this week relying on God with my family. I, I failed. There's times where I was carrying on worry and anxiety, so I was not relaxing in God, even in the places where I was relying on him. And you know what my answer to that has to be is not to try harder. It's actually to say, Jesus, everywhere where I failed this past week and I'm going to fail the next one, you didn't. Jesus never once did not rely on his father. He did it perfectly every time, and because of that, I can go to him for forgiveness for where I have fallen short. That's the beautiful thing in the Christian life. And so I say that because of this, is right now, maybe, maybe as you were listening to these things, maybe there is an area of your life where you're not relying upon God or you're not resting and relaxing in him. Here's what I would encourage you to do first, just to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I failed, but you haven't. Forgive me. Thank you for the cross because you died so I could be forgiven of where I've fallen short. Be forgiven and then say, Holy Spirit, now give me the strength to do this. In fact, this is perfect for leading into communion because communion is every week a reminder that even though we have fallen short and even though we don't perfectly do the things that God would have us do, our salvation does not depend upon us. It ultimately depends upon Jesus. And he already died that death. And because of that, we can take communion as a reminder that he's already paid the penalty for our sins, that we could have a relationship with God. So here's what I want us to do. We're actually going to... practice community together and share together. If you're new with us, we have uh, four stations. We have two in the front. One um, has juice over here. One has wine. The idea of these front stations is that you can take a piece of bread and dip it. In the back, we have individual packets, maybe if you just prefer that. But in this moment, here's what I would encourage all of us to do. As we're going to communion, just remind yourselves, this is literally a symbol of I am depending upon Jesus to save me. That this past week and this next week is not dependent upon me for my relationship with God. I am depending upon Jesus. I'm relying upon him. And because of that, by the way, you can rest in him, knowing he's got you. So let me just encourage you. We're actually going to have the band come up and uh, sing a song. We're either going to even like, just have us sing a song reflecting on the lyrics. Whenever you feel led, take communion, depending upon the Lord for your salvation and for every other part of your life. And then when you feel led, you can stand and then we can continue to worship together.